Someone asked for bank regulators. Well, here we have some, so uh, we responded to your call swiftly. <laughs> um, my, my name is Diego Zuluaga. I work for Cato, uh, and I'm very excited to be here. We are this month, for better or worse, commemorating 10 years since the financial crisis. And I think you'll agree with me that one of the brighter spots uh, has been the explosion in financial technology uh, and innovation in this space uh, in the decade that has followed it to try and address the perceived needs uh, in financial markets and plug some of the gaps that were exposed um, by the crisis. And God knows that there are uh, gaps that need to be plugged uh, according to the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Commission. Uh, as of 2015, there were 9 million American households who didn't own a bank account and an additional 24 million who had a basic bank account but relatively little access to uh, other financial services. So financial technology promises, and I think already is to some extent, uh, bridging that gap and bringing financial services that are more affordable uh, and, and uh, better oriented to these uh, underserved uh, groups. And financial inclusion is the subject uh, of our conversation uh, today. So I'm very excited to welcome our diverse and experienced panel uh, to discuss some of these issues. Without further ado, I'll introduce them and then we'll get started. From my far left, and in alphabetical order, we have Louis Kaditz uh, Peck, who is the Director of Public Policy and Regulatory at Lending Club, the marketplace lender. To his right is Jay Reinemann, who is a partner at Propel Venture Partners. And then we have Paul Watkins, the newly minted director of the Office of Innovation at the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, and Barry Widis, who is deputy controller uh, at the Office for the, of the Control of, of the Currency for Community Affairs. Uh, so welcome all. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. If I may start with the uh, market participants, uh, Jay and Lewis, uh, could you tell us uh, a little bit about how you see technology expanding financial inclusion and how you make financial inclusion part of your business model uh, or the business model of the firms that you are involved with? Maybe start with Lewis. Sure. Thanks, Diego. Happy to be here. Um, there's three ways I think that uh, fintech becomes a conversation about financial inclusion and has something to contribute there. And those are the ways that technology is lowering transactional costs uh, of, of offering financial products. Um, the ways in which uh, decisioning is able to be Im improved with different kinds of insight, and the uh, inclination of new entrants in a market to focus on underserved parts of the market because that's where the biggest market opportunities are. So um, the first, uh, on reducing transactional costs, that's sort of been the, the fundament of what drives Lending Club's business by operating online with no branches and automating a lot of tasks that banks uh, require a lot of labor costs to do traditionally. Um, we're able to offer personal loans at a much lower rate than the kinds of credit cards um, that people are, are using and, and uh, help them reduce the cost of their capital. Another great example of that is in small business lending where traditionally um, banks have struggled to make a small business loan economical until the loan size has reached maybe 250000 or more. And um, to throw a shout out to another firm, I, I recently learned that Square in their um, in their small business lending, their average loan size is six thousand dollars. So that's not possible without fintech. Um, the second one is improving credit decisioning. Um, uh, the researchers of the Federal Reserve looked at how decisioning is happening through Lending Club and compared it to uh, what they were seeing at traditional banks in the stress test data. And one of their interesting findings was that the correlation um, of Lending Club's credit models that we use with FICO has diminished from 80% when we started, and we're pretty much using a, 
a FICO-based model, to by 2015, that correlation had dropped to 35%. Uh, while still being very effective at identifying risk. And so what that means is that um, by using new kinds of uh, techniques and approaches, using technology to decision, we're identifying customers that traditional models would either overlook or overprice. Um, and that's allowing folks with lower FICO scores to get access to capital at a lower price. And then the third is the tendency of entrants to um, look for opportunities that incumbents have left behind. So the biggest part of our business is, um, is, is lending at a lower rate to people that are paying higher rates on their credit cards and helping them consolidate or replace that expensive revolving hamster wheel of credit card debt with a lower rate, hopefully get out of debt uh, term loan. Um, and that's an opportunity that was sort of left behind by the banks. I mean, it, uh, traditional banks um, could offer consumer loans um, Maybe not as efficiently as we can, I hope, um, but uh, they have to cannibalize their own businesses. And so that left behind an opportunity, and that's an example of how when you have new entrants in a market, um, they'll try to solve problems. Jay, um, how do you encourage the firms in your portfolio to uh, include financial inclusion uh, within their business objectives, if at all? Well, uh, so first of all, Propel is a venture fund. We, we invest in things that are rebuilding or rethinking financial services. And we do that because we think that the companies that we're going to invest in, there's a real market opportunity to do that and that we're going to make money ourselves and our investors will make money. So first and foremost, we'll, we'll make sure that whatever market or product that our partner, our, our partner companies are going after is something that's sustainable. So we won't invest in things that we are, are only... Um, for the good of the, the ecosystem or for the good of the consumer. Uh, it's got to have to be sustainable, which I, which I think is a good cause to have. Um, so we, we fundamentally believe that they're, the incumbent industry unfortunately has a lot of uh, baggage uh, with its real estate, with its distribution, its distribution model, its lack of ability to um, attract certain types of talent that the fintech guys all have as their advantage. Um, this fundamental digital transformation that all the banks that are trying to do or the financial institutions are doing is going to take a long time. Um, the fintechs that we're investing in, um, not all of them are, are focused on, on the um, financial inclusion, but what they all are focused on is making products more efficient and more accessible uh, reducing the costs and uh, both for the, for the entire ecosystem uh, and that's in all sorts of different categories. Um, they all deploy some sort of technology, almost every single one of them is using some sort of machine learning, which I think is still a little bit unusual at most of the, the financial institutions. Um, probably the most prominent uh, companies that we've got uh, that, are, that are just focused on financial inclusion uh, a company called Inseeked, which is doing lending, uh, primarily not di not directly, but through partners like bodegas or merchants that have a relationship with this consumer uh, that's that's more friendly than unfortunately than the bank has, um, and they're providing a, an alternative to the very high cost payday loans. Um, extremely profitable uh, business, but still extremely um, much more consumer friendly than than what the alternatives are. Paul, regulators are not usually accused of having a comparative advantage in innovation. 
but you find yourself in a position as director of the new office at the Bureau of Innovation uh, of trying to look at the market and what's happening to it uh, in both addressing your mission in terms of consumer protection while also encouraging good developments. How are you going about it and how would you describe the outlook that the Bureau is taking going forward in this direction? Well, thank you for that question, Diego, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. I need to uh, deploy the regulator's heuristic, which is these are my views and are not legal advice and might not be anyone else's views. Uh, and I am glad to be at the Office of Innovation at the, at the BCFP. Based on the excellent keynote uh, addressed by the commissioner, I guess I now need to think of myself as an additional layer of bureaucracy, which had not <laughs> been my mindset uh, pr previously. So. I, I love the question because this really goes to the definition of what is consumer protection. There is this tendency to view innovation and consumer protection as opposites. I think that is wrong. The overall category, the category that our bureau cares about is consumer protection. Subcategories of consumer protection are both innovation and fraud prevention. This is clear from common sense. It's also clear from our statutory authority. You all probably have mobile banking apps. There's no regulator that told banks you need to have an app. Uh, that happened because they didn't want to lose market share because they're afraid of innovation. There are all sorts of developments like that that are protecting consumers, that are improving prices, that are improving services that we cannot direct through enforcement actions. And that is the fundamental, the core protection that consumers use every day the ability to go to another website, to walk across the street, and choose a better product. And there is a significant deterrent effect from the fear of innovation. I don't know if anyone's analyzed whether that deterrent effect is greater than the deterrent effect of fraud actions. They're both important. Uh, they both need to be utilized by the Bureau. Um, but these two things, innovation and consumer protection, are not in opposition. And so it's incumbent upon us to have policies that promote innovation because it's good for the consumer. We have two existing policies that were designed to that end, uh, trial disclosure program, no action policy. The first initiative of the Office of Innovation was to uh, put out, I, we've, we've had this office that existed for six weeks. Uh, we we uh, rewrote the, um, uh, the trial disclosure policy, put it out for comment Monday. I'm happy to talk about that in more detail. But because it's so difficult for regulators to stay on the cutting edge of where the technology is going, I think it's incumbent on us to have structures that are adaptable so that we can uh, allow innovation to occur uh, without having to foresee every particular innovation that might be coming down the road and how our rules are going to apply to that particular development. Barry, this summer saw a flurry of um, announcements in terms of uh, fintech policy uh, on the part of the federal government. And on the day that the Treasury's uh, fintech report came out, the Office for the Control of the Currency uh, announced that it would be formally launching its uh, fintech charter uh, or Fintech Charter, I know it's, it has a longer official name, which I'm yes. sure you'll <laughs> give us, yes. uh, but known as the Fintech Charter. Yes. Uh, and this has been in discussion for a number of years now, and uh, I think people were very excited, and at the same time, people are still finding out what it is about. So could you explain a little bit what this charter, what this special purpose charter is intended to do? Sure, uh, and again, thanks for inviting us. Um, the Office of the Control of the Currency, just uh, so everyone knows, is a bureau within the US Treasury Department. 
We're responsible supervising national banks, federal associations, savings associations, and foreign um, branches. So uh, we charter um, and have historically chartered banks that have deposit insurance. Uh, the first uh, fintech that was chartered just a couple weeks ago, Vero Bank, uh, is a virtual bank. It deposits are all gathered online, um, but they have no branches. Uh, they are um, a national bank with deposit insurance. What the special purpose national bank charter is, or the fintech charter, uh, is an entity that is a national bank it is not taking deposits. And so we had um, a long process where we took public comments, held meetings, um, held a conference. We were hearing from other financial service providers in the FinTech space, and they were telling us throughout this process that they wanted a mechanism to offer a product nationwide through the internet uh, with just one supervisor, not being supervised by uh, a number of different state uh, regulatory agencies and not have to go state by state in which they wanted to do business but get a national uh, charter in order to do business. And so uh, responding to um, the need to provide increased efficiency in the market and to be responsive to clearly the changes that are taking place in the financial services landscape, uh, we went through a very um, open collaborative process, uh, getting lots of public comment, and it, as you said, it took quite a while to get there, but uh, we did make this announcement in, in July, and what essentially our policy says is uh, it lays out the guidelines by which a uh, financial institution that would like to receive a national charter that is not seeking deposit insurance, how they go about doing that with the OCC. Uh, we have created an Office of Innovation uh, within the OCC, uh, headed by our Chief Innovation Officer, Beth Knickerbocker, and she has been identified in this policy document as the go-to person for um, discussing the options for getting uh, a special purpose national bank charter. Uh, the special purpose national bank would be subject generally to the same rules and regulations related to capital, liquidity, um, resolution, uh, and, and heightened supervision of all national banks uh, that are in the startup status, and then ongoing supervision consistent with the way we supervise other national banks. Uh, we might uh, establish certain conditions uh, at the time of providing the charter based on the nature of the business. The business does, per our regulation, have to be uh, in lending or in payments. So those are the two uh, provisions that our regulations establish for us to provide uh, a federal charter for a special purpose national bank. And uh, just depending on the particular business model and what that entity seeks to do, you know, we could potentially establish other conditions at the time that we issue the charter. The one significant difference between a national bank or a federal savings association that takes deposits and one that doesn't is that the deposit-taking entity is subject to the Community Reinvestment Act that speaks to how that uh, financial services provider is going to be providing services to all segments of the community and not you know, cherry-picking certain uh, income levels or certain geographies in order to do business. And so the uh, FinTech equivalent to uh, the Community Reinvestment Act under our charter uh, is the um, financial inclusion commitment that we would be expecting all special purpose national bank charter applicants to develop 
and then be bound to uh, and supervised for over the course of the institution. And so, you know, they would come into us with particular metrics and goals as to how they would further financial inclusion because we're not really sure what types of charter applicants we're going to see. Uh, we don't have a lot of detail around what it means to promote financial inclusion. However, I think Lewis did a very good job of describing a number of ways that uh, fintechs today are furthering financial inclusion. I also think the Treasury Department's uh, fintech report, which was mentioned a couple times this morning, is worth looking at to see a variety of ways that the Treasury has pointed out that uh, financial services providers in the fintech space are, are really helping to expand accessibility to affordable financial services to all segments of the market, including entrance. So uh, that's a high-level overview. And again, I'm happy to uh, dig deeper on any of the parts I discussed or uh, go into any more in, in Q&A. What do you expect TakeUp to be like? Do you have any expectation of the number of charters you would be granting over the next 18 months, 24 months? We really don't. Um, we've held a number of meetings with firms that have expressed potential interest over the last 18 months. When we've um, been talking about this, we've had a, a draft policy out in um, draft licensing manual out for comment now for, for quite some time. So I think it was fairly clear to many of the industry participants what it was that um, this charter was all about. So um, told that we've had um, over the course of the last few years, you know, um, dozens of meetings. Uh, I've certainly been in a number of them as a member of the agency's responsible innovation committee. But um, it's hard to say um, what, what the uptake will be. Lewis, as a market participant, how have you uh, welcomed the uh, news from the OCC? And uh, what would be your, uh, if, if any, opportunities or threats that you see in, in this new regulatory framework, particularly in light of some of the state's responses? The state of New York wasn't particularly pleased. Uh, I you know, welcome your comments on that. Um, I think I can probably speak on behalf of the, of the whole fintech industry in saying that folks are really excited about it. I think it's exactly the kind of thinking that industry wants to see from regulators about how do you how do you focus on the principles of what regulation is trying to accomplish and figure out ways to tailor those regulations to the business models that are emerging to harness what the initiative was called, uh, advancing responsible banking, um, pardon me, responsible innovation in the banking system. And, and I think it's a great example of doing that. Um, I think, you know, the, um, the, the, the conflict between the, at the federal level and the states is really one of the most interesting and, and difficult things that happens in not only fintech regulation, but federalism <laughs> broadly. And uh, it's playing out here. And um, you know, there's good things happening at the state level, too, with Vision 2020 to get the states aligned. And I think uh, we're hopeful that that kind of cooperative process of creating um, pro-innovation environments at the state level will um, We'll, we'll draw more focus than the than the, um, than the than the conflict. Yeah, I just to interrupt. Sure. I, I think I would applaud Paul's efforts in Arizona. I don't know if the the comments made from the New York DFS were very appropriate. Uh, a little bit, um, uh, the, particularly the one about adults uh, don't play in sandboxes; they follow the <laughs> rules, and only kids play in sandboxes. I mean, I think that kind of comment is just not constructive. Uh, and, and forward thinking about what we need to do together. Uh. 
Paul, uh, you were mentioned just now, and one of the reasons um, a lot of people are very excited with your appointment was that you were involved in the creation of a fintech sandbox in the state of Arizona. Uh, and regardless of the discussion about toddlers, this seems to be uh, a practice that is being copied around the world. Uh, it was in place in the United Kingdom, uh, you know, I think from 2015 or so, and it seems to have been quite successful at encouraging uh, innovation and in, in emerging technologies. So how are you hoping to transpose that to the federal level? And I know on Monday, we had the exciting announcement of some sort of sandbox program, although I think it's got yet another long name instead of a sandbox program. But can you describe that for us? And, sure. uh, and, and maybe in light of your experience in Arizona, see, see what your, say what your expectations are for the future. Right. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for that question. And I, I was privileged to be part of that effort in Arizona, which again was driven by our consumer protection mandate, as well as our, our frustration in bringing enforcement actions in all these segments where we didn't see the market changing. We can bring an action. We can stop a bad actor. We can't create a good product. And if there are not good alternatives out there for consumers, then the long-term future is not that bright. Uh, so as someone who cares about consumer protection, we need to establish these regulatory structures, our, our first step was a what we're calling a trial disclosure sandbox. And uh, disclosures are an important key for, for the new delivery mechanisms that are happening in fintech. Uh, a lot of our regulations are not, were not written, were not designed with uh, mobile accessibility in mind. And there are all sorts of ways to improve the way this, so that disclosures are made. This is particularly true going back to the first question. Uh, with respect to AI and using all data when folks are, are, are trying to underwrite loans in creative ways. Oftentimes the process is so complex that it's difficult to explain the, uh, the result using the traditional categories that regulators have imposed. So we've also expanded the definition of disclosure to include adverse action notices to try to uh, promote innovation in that space. And going to the coordination Peace. Around the world, I think our federalism structure is viewed as a detriment. There are significant advantages to it, uh, specifically in, in facilitating innovation. So if you look at the policy that we posted, we said any entity that's already in a state sandbox uh, will be admitted into our disclosure sandbox so they can start testing disclosures. We are more comfortable making that allowance because we know uh, the pressure that state regulators are under to protect consumers the, uh, through all states, even with uh, potentially differing philosophies. And then, you know, going back to the, uh, the toddlers and adults comment, that is addressing a truth. Do we want a financial system that works only for established products, or do we want a financial system that works for new products and established products? The toddlers, the toddler products are the new products. I think we want new products to enter our financial system, and so we should have regulatory structures that, uh, that allow that. So I viewed those comments as sort of justifying the existence of a sandbox. One of the uh, concerns among more free market people about sandboxes is that they reduce the pressure on regulators to update the whole gamut of regulation by creating some sort of safety valve where the smaller players can come in uh, and thereby reducing the impetus. How, how is the Bureau trying to make sure that the 
even the environment for established players is also, uh, also evolves with new technologies. So there's nothing with our disclosure policy and then our supervisory notes indicated that we're considering revising our no action letter policy, which hasn't been published yet, um, but, but, but that's, that's in our notes. So if, if you take the disclosure policy as, as an indication, it's open to all participants, existing participants, new participants, and there is a component there that allows, if, if a disclosure tests successfully, so we receive data, we see this is not harming the consumer, there are advantages, it's lower cost, uh, it's more effective, et cetera. Uh, under the policy as, as we've proposed it, uh, that disclosure can be used until we change the rule. So this is, very, this is a policy that is very, very clearly directed at establishing evidence that will lead to regulatory change uh, when a foundation for that change is established. So this is, this is not about distorting the market, picking winners and losers. It's also not being driven in a, a cohort model. I think what the UK has done, uh, what the FCA has done is absolutely phenomenal. The downside to the cohort model is that there are a third of the applicants getting in, uh, which is presumably a problem for the two thirds that aren't. Uh, and there is a cap on, uh, it's hard to scale that type of structure. So both in Arizona and at the Bureau, I think it's important to do these things on a rolling basis so that applications are judged on their merits and, uh, and, and not in competition with, uh, with what else is coming in the door. Barry, the theme of regulatory fragmentation in the federal structure was mentioned, and this is both between state regulators and federal regulators and then across federal banking regulators. And I know in the context of the OCC's review of the Community Reinvestment Act, um, it, some, some of the questions that have emerged is to what extent the OCC reviewing it uh, on its own or individually uh, might be a good idea versus working together with all the other regulators who are involved in enforcing this, this legislation. What is the OCC's thinking and maybe Chairman Odding's, uh, your boss's thinking, uh, in going about this? Right. Well, um, I'll start with the Community Reinvestment Act and then I'll get to the broader question of regulatory fragmentation. So with respect to the Community Re Reinvestment Act, um, you know, as I said, most um, uh, all banks that take uh, deposits are subject to the Community Reinvestment Act. And so we do have uh, a significant number of banks that are uh, virtual banks uh, already that are taking deposits uh, in addition to the startup I mentioned, Vero. Bank and um, CRA was written in 1977 when uh, deposit taking was primarily through branch network and as we know uh, banking has, has changed significantly. So one of the things that we undertook as part of this CRA review process is to look at whether or not we should um, evaluate banks performance under the Community Reinvestment Act differently because today we're just looking at where banks have their main office or their deposit taking facilities and so if you're an internet bank and your main office is in, let's say, Salt Lake City, Utah, um, you know, you're, you're really um, taking deposits realistically from around the country, but because of the arcane way our rules are written, we're really saying that those deposits are being evaluated relative to Salt Lake City. And so that's an example of one of the uh, anachronisms of our CRA regulation. So controller auditing did undertake an effort to um, issue a, an advance notice of proposed rulemaking that asks uh, a series of questions about how we can modernize the Community Reinvestment Act relative to this particular issue as well as others. And, you know, we, we will share the comments uh, that we receive on this with the other bank regulatory agencies. 
uh, and ask if they would like to move forward with us when we move forward on, on rulemaking. So we're really at a very early stage and there's very little risk of, uh, at this moment, of regulatory fragmentation by asking a series of questions as to how we can modernize CRA. With respect to FinTech and uh, fragmentation, um, you know, I believe that we have made very good progress uh, on an interagency basis to um, begin to resolve FinTech-related questions. Um, the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council, or FFIEC, is the formal uh, vehicle through which we do this, and the state bank regulatory agencies are part of, of the FFIEC. Um, we also have um, a very informal network of chief innovation officers or heads of the Office of Innovation, uh, such as Paul Performs or Beth Knickerbocker at our agency, and they're in regular communication uh, around emerging issues. And then I is, uh, uh, participate on an interagency um, financial innovation forum uh, that is, uh, includes all the bank regulatory agencies uh, and the NCUA that meets on a quarterly basis uh, formally to discuss emerging issues, and then we have periodic meetings where we uh, talk through other issues that are that are emerging. So, I don't really feel that um, you know regulatory fragmentation is um, is necessarily a problem. I think it gets more to the issue of having uh, the desire uh, to move forward on certain issues. Uh, I think the um, Commissioner uh, Pierce raised earlier in her remarks um, a question of political will to take on certain issues. Um, and so I, I sometimes think that um, the issue really relates to political will to uh, tackle uh, fintech-related policy issues as opposed to the fact that the regulators are um, you know, perhaps not speaking to each other, which really I don't think is the case. Jay, um, often discussions of fintech, particularly until the present time or in the early years, uh, talked about fintech firms as a separate uh, subsector within the financial services industry, but increasingly banks are looking to take up a lot of the new technologies or directly buying up some of the new players or in some way using this technology for their traditional bread and butter business models. And I know that Propel Venture Partners, your firm, uh, had a relationship with BBBA and I think still has uh, some sort of connection to them. But I'm curious to know, as an incubator, uh, how you act as a bridge between the incumbents and their needs or preferences or what they see as competitive threats and some of the new business models that are emerging and that you see so much promise in. Yeah, Pro Propel still has a relationship. Uh, BBVA, this, it's a large Spanish bank uh, headquartered in Madrid, but uh, largest part of their business is in Mexico, all over Latin America. Um, they, like many, are trying to figure out their digital transformation. Uh, they have a very... Um, uh, infamous chairman that's been outspoken about how 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 banks are going to be data companies or software companies, um, with some similar comments to like what Mark Andreessen said. He the, he has been driving some some change, and part of why Propel is is with them is just because we're a bit of an access point for information, uh, high level ideas of what's going on in the market. Um, it, as a large financial institution, it's really hard. To, um, to leverage technologies. I think what, what you were just talking about with some of the um, hopefully better inclusion about how AI may work with underwriting, um, that, may, that I hope will help. Um, but right now, there's a reluctance to deploy certain types of technologies because there, there isn't a clear 
uh, regulatory framework where they will work. Um, so there's an indirect relationship that we have with this bank that's going to help them understand what things are coming. Um, the, individual financial, the individual financial institutions, I think, all are trying to figure that out. Um, I think the, um, the third-party um, monitoring or, or vendor relationships, I think there's maybe some new regulation that's coming around about how making that's going to be a little bit easier. Um, that should help. Um, but it's, it's tough to have a, a, the, the, the small guy work with the giant uh, just because they can chew them up and spit them out, where our, our little companies that are, that are just still in formation, most of them are pre-revenue, they, they've got only a limited amount of time to focus, and they need to, to, um, to generate revenue if, if they're going to survive. Um, and waiting for a bank cycle for vendor management to, to approve a deal that can take literally a year. And in some of the most important areas, like a lot of really interesting compliance companies are being built right now. And even those guys that are, would be so critical uh, to the safety and soundness of, of the financial institutions, getting that stuff approved through their, their processes takes a tremendous amount of time. Lewis, you talked about your uh, proprietary credit scoring model and some of the results that the Fed found in looking at it versus uh, FICO scores. And of course, this was one of the areas that was identified by the Treasury as of promise in expanding access to financial services and lowering costs, particularly transaction costs. Um, but I'm curious, how do you go about um, promoting innovation in that particular space while also staying on the right side of some legislation that might be found to um, be violated by innovative credit scoring models? Yeah. Um, well, we've actually just written the, the Bureau a letter. So, so it really comes down to the fair lending laws and the fair credit reporting laws um, that govern the adverse action questions that, that Paul's just put out some um, uh, an invitation to, to help with. Um, and, and that's really a critical piece. And then there's the fair lending questions. Um, we, we've written a letter to the Bureau a moment ago about um, the, the value we see in maintaining uh, the disparate impact laws because we think that, for, that that's a very flexible and sort of pro-innovation frame amongst the types of policy um, responses you could have for fair lending. Um, we think the, the principles that we want from regulators as industry are um, outcomes-based regulation. Outcomes-based regulation is what fosters innovation. And so uh, we actually think that um, some of the, what would be most helpful would be clarification a little bit and encouragement that um, as long as we can show that as we're using things like alternative data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, um, that our outcomes are fair, um, that that kind of outcomes-based frame will, will foster innovation, and the clarity that that's okay will also foster that innovation. Paul, would you care to? Respond or elaborate uh, not on, on, on the on the bureau on the bureau's outlook on this and you know the the application of fair lending laws to right, some of these right. innovative data treatment. Yeah, it's it's only uh, it's a very important issue for the bureau. There's actually a conference, I, I guess I should say, weather permitting, uh, on Monday at the bureau on this very topic, uh, where those sorts of issues are going to be uh, discussed in depth. So the bureau recognizes the importance of these issues. It was one of the areas, wasn't it, that you, the predecessor to the Office of Innovation Project Catalyst, where it was said that there was an absence of regulatory certainty that perhaps was the reason why the no-action letters weren't uh, taken advantage of 
perhaps as much as might have been hoped. The, the one, the one no-action letter that was issued to Upstart was issued in, in this space. I, I think there were probably a number of reasons why that particular structure was not uh, used. Uh, I, I don't think it was probably, and nothing's as, as fast-moving as people in Silicon Valley want it to be, uh, but that particular process, I think, was, was, is widely recognized as having been very slow, uh, so that was one problem. Right. Well, let's see if we have any questions from the, from the floor. Please uh, raise your hands, um, and I will try and, and get to you. We have one in the back over there, and then one here in the middle. So let's start there. Yeah. Hi, please, uh, please state who you are and where you're from, yes. and uh, state your question and you know as yeah. briefly so we can get so as much. So my name possible. is Bart Sparkin. We ran um, two credit cards bank in Europe, and for the past five years, we're trying to get a banking license in the U.S. We have all the funding. And we've been basically bounced around between all the agency, you know, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, the state regulators, the FIC, the BCFP, and they all have very nice kind of words. But, you know, if you look back at the banking license that had been approved the last 10 years, the most funny example I found was the Amish bank that was approved because of the, to finance the horse buggies. I mean, that's just endemical of the whole culture towards uh, approving banking license since 2009. So last year, two have been approved. And it's very nebulous how and when they got approved. So how, you know, not, not pointing anyone at individuals, but for example, I'm sure, you know, all the upstarts like Sophie, Upstart, Prosper, LendUp, they've all done, they've all done the rounds with the regulators and none of them had gotten a banking license. And I can guarantee you that, um, um, you know, Prosper and the others, they would be much more profitable if they had their own uh, banking licenses. State your question. So my question is, when between the agencies, again, they're going to figure out how to give a clear recipe of how you get a banking license? I'm not so sure that those guys actually want one. Well, like, the system is working pretty well right now for, let's use Prosper example. We're an investor in there. I'm not speaking on their behalf. But, but they've got WebBank already in place. Uh, this, the, the, the new charter is not going to give them depository rights, uh, which is maybe the thing that they would mostly need. So I, I think the, the charter is a, a really good thing, but I don't think they necessarily need it. Uh, they've figured out life. They've got, uh, they've, got, uh, they've got deposits, not through a traditional way, but it's, uh, it's stable. Uh, they're not as cheap as they would like, but I think it's, it's working. And, and the uncertainty right now regarding the charter is probably just not worth it right now. Um, maybe in five years, ten years, I don't know. You, maybe, maybe you want to say what you guys are thinking. Barry, <laughs> would you get to quick? Yeah. So there's, there, I think what you might be referring to is getting deposit insurance because um, you know OCC is the chartering entity. So what we have done, as I, I said earlier, is that we have provided a path for an entity that wants to get a national charter that provides financial services that does not need deposit insurance. So we, we have provided a path for doing that. Um, the states provide a path for providing a license for providing certain types of financial services within their states, but uh, then certain types of financial services players have to go to the various states to get licensed and then have to be subject to examination and supervision by multiple states. So um, we, we believe that our charter uh, at a national level addresses that particular barrier that you were mentioning. And then you had mentioned issuing credit cards in Europe. I don't know if you were referring to 
uh, Visa and MasterCard, but um, you know, there is a separate process for, for offering you know, Visa and MasterCard you know, through those issuers' rules. So um, hopefully that responds to your question. Um, we think we've tried to make the process easier by developing this national charter option without deposit insurance. Thanks. One question there in the middle. Hi, I'm uh, Todd Baker, and I'm at the Richmond Center at Columbia Business and Law Schools. So I have a couple of questions um, that are related. One for, for Barry, wh why has no one applied yet for a FinTech charter? And the second question is a little unfair to this group, but uh, and it relates to the question the previous gentleman raised. What is your sense on whether the FDIC is going to adjust its view of the world so that it is more open to non-standard banking charters, banks that don't look like the first national bank of South someplace, but um, are really focused on um, uh, alternative banking models and risks? Thanks. Barry, why has no one applied for a charter yet? Uh, well, it's been out there for five weeks, so um, I think people are just digesting what uh, is in it and perhaps beginning to have informal conversations, which we do encourage as part of our policy for potential applicants to do before they go to the cost and the expense of, of putting together an application, which is a costly process. But um, you know, once uh, an applicant does come in, it will be publicly known because we post on our website all new charter applicants, which also would include special purpose national bank charter applicants. And then the public portion of that application is also available on our website through what's called our Freedom of Information Act reading room. So we, we're hoping to be very transparent about this. And with regard to FDIC deposit insurance, uh, I, I'm not in a position to answer that question. I will note that there is new leadership at the FDIC uh, over uh, within the last few months. We have a new chair, um, and as time goes on, um, there'll be new um, vacancies on the FDIC board, and, and um, you know, stay tuned. Can I follow up on the first question? How will you measure success of the Special Purpose Charter of, in, in terms of promoting your objectives with it? Uh, because it's difficult to predict who might apply and the reasons why they might or might not. So how is the OCC going about assessing the, the benefits of it? Well, I think um, really we're not, we don't have a numeric measure as to how many banks we're trying to charter. The charters that we issue are, are banks that are going to be um, supervised well, um, have very well um, capitalized uh, plans for, for doing business that they um, provide a financial inclusion commitment that um, they're able to achieve and that we um, hopefully see very few failures. Uh, certainly um, uh, the good news when you're issuing a charter for an entity that's not taking deposit is that there is not a risk to the deposit insurance fund. But at the same time, we also want to make sure that the consumers who are using the financial services of that entity are treated fairly and um, you know, we certainly want, wouldn't want to see any of those uh, customers be financially harmed because we issued a license for an entity that, um, um, that, that did not do business properly. So we think we've put enough safeguards in place through our guidelines related to capital policy, liquidity, um, operational risk, and so forth that we think um, you know, that there's high degree of expected success of the entities that we charter. Would anyone like to comment on the FDIC question? 
Anyone else? No? More questions? I'm going to go to the underserved corner there because this conference is all about inclusion. <laughs> we have one in the back there. Thank you. Uh, I'm Alex from Gusto on the legal team. We're a payroll company. Um, I have another question about the special purpose charter. Um, what, what would you say is the main value add of the special purpose charter? What would make a company that does payments or lending, but you know, all these companies might want to expand their financial services portfolio in the future. Why choose the special purpose charter instead of going the route that Vero did and getting a traditional national bank charter? Well, I think we wanted to provide a range of options. Um, the option for um, uh, a depository um, that has um, FDIC insurance, um, you know, we heard from one of the other panelists or one of the other um, audience members uh, that path has been, has been challenging uh, for whatever reason. Uh, we do have um, Vero that we've provided conditional approval to, but they still must obtain deposit insurance. Um, so, you know, we wanted to provide a greater range of options, but um, certainly being a fintech and having a range of services and taking deposits and having deposit insurance uh, is the traditional option. Louis and Jay, do you care to uh, elaborate on why, you know, some of the firms you know or are involved with would, would want I, this? Um, I, I think the a plethora of options is good. Mm -hmm. uh, the, U, the, the UK, uh, the FCA, because of the couple of different options that they had, that was actually really good for them. And I don't think, and, I, and even the, I know the Wall Street Journal was doing some sort of article this morning about also questioning why aren't people applying for the charter. I think it's not a simple question for a, a big or small company to just do it after only five weeks. It's not a fair, it's not a fair um, uh, question at this point, just because any serious company that's out there is, is going to take some time to absorb exactly what this means. The small startup is not going to jump into this right now. They can't afford to go through that process right now. Maybe they'll go to Arizona and start there or something instead. Um, so I, I think uh, it's just different firms are going to want different things. And, and I'm glad there's now another option. It still needs a lot of work to get figured out what's going to happen, but Thanks. right step. One question here in the front. I, I was uh, interested in the... Who, can you state who oh, you are? Sorry, Bob Zayek. I practice law here in San Francisco. Uh, I was quite interested in the passing comments, and I want to drill down a notch or two, uh, discussing uh, adverse action, uh, credit discrimination, um, uh, reasons for declining credit, and disparate impact. Specifically, when you have algorithm-driven credit granting, nobody can say a reason, a reason, why credit was, disclined, was declined. It's incredibly complex. It's the result of a calculation. Can, can you state the question? Yes. Yeah, so the question is, how will, and I know we're first, we being the country, is starting to discuss the issue at a regulatory level. So to some degree, I may be asking for speculation, which means maybe there's no answer. But how will anybody foresee reconciling the requirement that credit granting process not adversely affect protected groups when you don't even know the reason for the decline? And what right. if the credit granting process 
algorithm and somewhat pure does in fact result in a yep. disparate impact Thank you. on we, some group. How will that be handled from a regulatory standpoint? Paul, would you get a comment? So I think that this, this highlights the need for uh, targeted, limited testing of these types of disclosures. I'm not certain that there is absolutely no information, no relevant information that can be provided to consumers on these processes. I think there may be, there may be some, uh, but determining how the information available fits within the statutory goals, I think is going to be an ongoing iterative process. And hopefully the structure we've proposed will, uh, will help uh, that be achieved. Right. Can I just well, speak to that really course, quickly? Yeah. I think it's important to try, I'm gonna to try to dispel the, the view that um, it's impossible to use AI and machine learning without causing unfair outcomes. Um, so in terms of, so you can have, um, in terms of telling people why they're declined, uh, even if you don't have a, like a tree-based decision structure, you can, you can surface even with a more amorphous kind of model, what are the factors that are correlated with the decision. There's already other, um, other AI can sort of monitor the first AI, but, but what's so great about disparate impact is that it's outcomes based. So you can measure disparate impact, even if you don't know which is uh, what the factors that led to a decision, you can measure does the model overall have a disparate impact on protected classes? And that's what's so great about the disparate impact regime. And, and so I don't think there's any conflict whatsoever between disparate impact um, accountability and using innovative tools like AI machine learning to create the best credit models, which will actually create the best financial inclusion by identifying the, the folks that traditional models are overlooking and overpricing. That's a great note on which to end, how no, the goals are not necessarily conflicting. It's been a fascinating panel. It flew by. Thank you all very much for your wonderful contributions and your questions. Uh, please join me in thanking our speakers in the usual way.